chapter 1, we, uh, or in chapter 2, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar was shocked by the fact that Daniel's God was the God who revealed mysteries. And Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with the fact that God has the power to save. And the story uh, revolves around that idea that God's power to save insults the false gods of Nebuchadnezzar, forcing him to acknowledge the greatness of God. Let's pray together. Grant, Most Holy Father, that we approach your word as we ought. We are standing on holy ground. May we therefore be humble and listen with attentive ears and open hearts. We pray in and through Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, no one knows how much time elapsed between Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 3. Obviously, enough time had elapsed for the image to be built. Also, enough time had elapsed for Nebuchadnezzar to lose sight of the power of Israel's God. You'll recall the king's response at the end of Daniel chapter 2. In verses 45 to 49, we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. As Trimple Laman III states in his commentary, this is the first chapter, however, that does not give a more precise chronological marker. We do not know how much time has elapsed since the previous episode, but we must imagine a gap of not a few years to account for Nebuchadnezzar's shift from honoring the God of Daniel, as he did at the end of chapter 2, to throwing that God's devotees into a burning furnace. So then, according to chapter 2, Daniel's God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, and a revealer of mysteries. Notice that Daniel's God is the God of gods. Coming from the psalmist, or from the law of God, uh, that language, God of gods, means nothing other than that God is the only God, and all the other gods are idols. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we read, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Well, He's the God of gods. In Deuteronomy, He doesn't acknowledge that other gods exist. He just says that He's the God of gods, saying that that God is the only one. And we pick that up in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where we read, Try... Or to you it was shown that you might know the Lord that the Lord your God is God. There is no other besides Him. Nebuchadnezzar believes in many gods and many lords. Therefore, in this context, he is merely acknowledging the power of Israel's God. In chapter 2, the king acknowledged that Israel's God was a revealer of mysteries, 
Other gods were apparently unable to do so. Now some have thought that Nebuchadnezzar was converted in chapter 2. I believe that chapter 3 proves that not to be the case. Neither is the king converted in chapter 3. Now in chapter 4, when we get there next time, we have probably a good possibility that he is converted. But in this chapter, no. So we read that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image whose height was an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, which is 90 feet tall by 9 feet at the base. He set it up on the plains of Dura um, in the province of Babylon. The plain there, if you can imagine yourself in kind of a, a, a where you have hills on one side, hills on the other side, and in the middle of that just this large plain. That's kind of what it looked like there. And he set up everything there and he called people to worship. We notice first that the king desired to centralize worship. He wasn't saying that that other people that other could, couldn't have their gods. He would acknowledge that other gods existed. In fact, he was himself a worshiper of many gods. But this move here centralizes worship and helps unify the kingdom under his rule. Was the image an image of the king? Well, no one knows. But if it was, the intention was to declare that Nebuchadnezzar was united with his gods in ruling his realm. In other words, the centralization of worship is the centralization of power. So you can have a, uh, you can have a qualified sense of freedom of religion as long as you pay homage to the to this to the gods of the state. The author Daniel, this is, comes from Trevor Longman again, the, the author of Daniel does not inform us whether the image was a god or the king himself. In one sense, this distinction does not matter. Whether deity or the divinized king, the command was to worship and bow down to this statue to treat it or what it represented as the most important power in the universe. Such a command was possible for a faithful follower. Such a command was not possible for a faithful follower of the true God. And that's the point of the text. Centralized worship. Get everybody under your control. It's an exercise of power. Well, open your eyes to what is happening in our midst. Do you not think that you and I are being called to worship at the shrine of American gods? No, there are no images. Or are there? The dollar sign is one, right? The image is on television and on the internet. What about the images of celebrating sexual identity and transgenderism? They're all over the place. Do you not think that those are not idols? Or they, you know, that they are idols? And what has our president just ordered Americans to do in his latest executive orders? Why are our daughters filled with the idea that thin is in? Why? Why are our children, why are our children being taught that their physical appearance is all that really matters? And it needs to fit a certain form. You know, back in the 30s, women with, that, didn't, that were 
less voluptuous they were in. Thin and small-breasted, right? That was the thing back then. Now, you know, larger breasts, thin waists. But that are, those are images that are created by the media around us. And they're telling us that's what we need to look like. And so what happens to our daughters? What happens to our sons when they don't look like men who, you know, have all these bulky muscles? What happens to them when they don't look like this charming dude that's swimming on the beach, you know, in some advertisement with, you know, a nice physique? What, hap- what are they living up to? They're living up to an idol. You know, the magazines that we've had over the years, Teen and Cosmopolitan, well, what about pastors? Do you think that we're that we're that we escape this temptation to to worship idols? How about the idol of success? How about the idol of relevance in preaching? How about uh, the idol of large numbers, having a big church? Do you want to know how tempting it is to pad the church report so that we appear to be better than we are? I go to Presbyterian, I try to think, okay, what can I say here that's going to make us look really better? That's what I, that's what I do. It's in my head. What can I tell you? How many missions agencies pad their reports to get more money for their ministries? They do it all the time. All the time. What about the movies we watch? What am I telling you? Well, don't watch television. Am I telling you don't look at things? No. I'm telling you to use discernment. There's one way that you can discern things that I think is very helpful to you if you'll make note of this. Ask yourself worldview questions when you're listening or watching something or looking at a magazine. Always ask these questions. Have them in your mind. You don't, have, you don't even have to memorize them. Just, just kind of have them in your mind. They don't have to be exactly what I'm telling you, but there are seven questions that you should ask yourself as you're watching things. Number one, what is the nature of ultimate reality? What are they telling you ultimate reality is? Is it the universe? You know? Is it robots and you know artificial intelligence? What is it that they're saying is ultimate reality? Second, what is the nature of material reality? What are you? What are you made of? Are you just a are you just a bunch of atoms, you know, that kind of fell together by chance and ended up where you are right now? Is that is is all is is all that you are a complex of chemicals in your brain? Because that's what people tell us. Third, what is a human being? Are we nothing more than evolved animals coming from some amoeba in a pool of slime? Is that what we are? Or are we image bearers of God? What is a human being? Fourth, what happens to a person at death? What happens when you die? I know somebody that just wants to die. That's all I hear. I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. And I said, what makes you think that death is going to be so good? 
What do you think is going to happen to you? Where do you get your information about what happens after death? Who tells you what you think you know? And that leads to the fifth question. Why is it possible to know anything at all? Why do you know anything? What does it even mean to know anything? How do you know anything? How do you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Well, you can tell me, well, that just makes sense. Really? Where does just make sense come from? Who, what does that even mean? How do you know that? Sixth, how do we know what is right and what is wrong? Well, in our world, in America, what's right and what's wrong is being determined by the United States government, by politicians and by special interest groups. They say what's right or wrong. And I say no, God says what's right or wrong. But if you're really nothing more than an animal, if you're nothing more than the end product of evolution, then they are right. They're the ones that determine right and wrong. And Nazi Germany was right because Hitler determined what was right and wrong. And anybody who kills anybody, they're right because they're determining what's right and wrong for them. If there's no moral absolutes that transcend all cultures and all peoples, then whatever anybody does is okay. So the young Arab who got, the young Muslim who got let off, let off of a rape charge back east somewhere because the judge says it was part of his culture is okay. Seventh, what is the meaning of human history? Does our past mean anything? Is there a past? Or is history just the record of those who won? What is it? So you've got to ask these questions because that's what people are trying to get you to think about even though you're not aware of it. You, you're, not, you're not going to sit there and say, oh, they're trying to tell me this or that. Unless you're thinking, okay? Unless you're thinking. So we're in the same place that the young men that stood on the plains of Dura were standing before a God that the authority over us is telling us to worship. Well, I want you to notice that the king orders all his subjects to worship. There's no exceptions. Now, where was Daniel? I don't know. I wondered. He was in the king's kingdom. <laughs> Daniel's not in this, in this story. That's right. Well, he was in the king's court is the last thing that we heard. Yep. Maybe he had a reason for not being there. We don't know. But Daniel's not there. So he, the king, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image of the king Nebuchadnezzar set up. Now, secondly, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the emphasis, of, uh, of the image. So you notice the repetition, right? Yeah. And uh, the list of these... These lists appear ponderous to us, but as Tremper Longman says, their literary effect is to heighten the tension and the feeling of danger toward three friends who will soon be singled out of a group. As Felwell states, 
Through repetition, the narrator creates a scenario in which conformity is normative, disobedience is unthinkable. You get all these people together and they're all saying this and you say it over again and you, you set the stage and you, you intensify what's going on because you want conformity. So the herald then proclaims aloud, you are commanded, and we read that part, all nations and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, the lyre, and again, that's repeated. The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden idol. That list of things is repeated again. Why? For the emphasis, because it gives it gives you the sense of being there, of hearing all this stuff real loud. Just like we hear when we um, when there's a big gathering, right? There's going to be a um, you know some kind of presidential um, or some kind of political thing. There's always music and it's loud, right? They want to get everybody's attention. And so that's what's happening there. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's trying to centralize religion. Well, once religion is centralized, power is centralized, unification is assured. Babylon was filled with many gods. The king himself was a polytheist. That is, he worshipped many gods. People will still be able to worship their own gods as long as they worship this idol as well. This is exactly what we see. The command is given and the people obey. Well, most people obeyed. The same thing occurred at the time of the early church. The church claimed Jesus is Lord. Rome declared Caesar is Lord. It was okay to believe that Jesus is Lord if you also affirmed Caesar is Lord. That Christians could not do. So they suffered persecution. America is moving in the same direction. We can have our church. We can have our worship. We can do so if we follow the agenda that's going to be set before us. We can proclaim the love of God if we don't talk about sin. We can talk about politically approved sin like whiteness and hate speech. If we are not already there, I fear we are moving in the direction of religious oppression and into persecution. Why? Because we believe the Bible is God's holy, inerrant word. We believe that God has told us what to believe and how to live. And what he says does not comport with what modern man says. What will be our response? What, we, what will we do when they say, you cannot say X? You cannot say Y? You cannot say Z. You can talk about the love of God from now until the sun goes down. And you can talk about the sins of whiteness and of, of, of hate, hate speech and of people who don't support transgenderism. They're horrible people. You can talk about how bad they are. But don't talk about the sin that the Bible talks about. The sin, you know what? that you and I are guilty of. Diana and I just finished reading 2 Samuel. And I'll tell you, it's hard to go through <laughs> the Old Testament. Because, you know what happens? 
people just are over and over and over again. They're doing things against the will of God. David, he was God, a man after God's own heart. He had a bunch of concubines and he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he killed all these people. He, was, he killed so many people. There was so much, so much blood on his hands that God would not allow him to build him a temple. Amen. And then you get into Kings and what happens? Oh, there's Solomon. But the whole book of Kings is focused on one point right in the middle of the, right in the, middle of the book. It's focused on the fact that Solomon built his house larger and more, more beautiful than the temple of God. The whole book focuses on that one point. It's, a key, it's like a chiasm. So, you get, so here you have Solomon, the wisest man in Israel. And then you start going through all the other books. And then Diana said this morning, can we read something else? Because <laughs> we just finished Second Samuel. She said, because I've been reading in Jeremiah. She said, exactly. it, she said, it makes me cry. Yeah. Yeah. It should. It should. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's true. She said, isn't there something we can read that's more happy? And I said, no. <laughs> you know why? Because you get into the New Testament and the church... The church is just as sinful. The Amen. church is just as divided. The church is just as immoral. Amen. It's Amen. like, oh my goodness. So I was thinking, as we were reading this morning, it, it came to me, I thought, you know what, the Old Testament is a large, large portion of the Bible. 75% of the Bible, as a matter of fact. And you come away from it kind of like, man... People are really bad. We're really bad. I'm really bad. Now, but then you get into the New Testament, and guess what? All of a sudden, you read about Jesus. And what is He coming to do? Give us rest. Give us hope. When we get into the Gospel, what are we getting? Rest. And we're getting hope. People are still sinful, yes. But guess what? It's not that we're getting better. Right. Amen. It's that God is transforming us into a new image, the image of Christ. Hallelujah. And so, yeah, we're going to, yeah, we're, I'm, friends, I'm a sinner. Amen. I have done, you know, if, if I told you the sins I've committed, you would ask me to leave the building. I was a horrible person my whole life. And even as a pastor, I'll tell you, I, I failed. I, I failed horribly. I was reading Calvin's sermons to uh, on first timothy and he started saying some things and i i just i didn't start to cry but i almost started to cry because i thought calvin's saying things that i should have been and i never was i was never dedicated to expositing the word of god oh sure i worked at it but i never it didn't have all of me it didn't it didn't grip my soul what can I say? How can I go back? I can't. So now I look at this and I think, boy, if all this is coming, well, what's going to happen to me? What's gonna, what am I going to, how's my response going to be to the coming crisis, if there is one, which I think there will be, but what am I going to do? That's my question. That's a question you have to ask yourself. Because you see, you're going to have to be faithful. 
and there are going to be people who point the finger at you. That brings us to the next thing I draw your attention to, and that is this, that therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, notice that, certain Chaldeans, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound, and then you notice that it's repeated, the, pipe, the, the horn, the pipe, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, on and on again, all that's repeated. They're supposed to worship, worship this idol you've set up. Well, there's three guys out there, those Jews. There's those Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love the way that that reads. You know, it makes these guys, it, makes, it looks like there's a conspiracy here. I think there was. Well, some people actually believe that a conspiracy was a, is abroad. And, you know, maybe they're correct. I mean, notice the words. Certain Chaldeans came forward. Not all of them, but certain ones. And could it be that those certain Chaldeans were the ones who expressed jealously towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? After all, in chapter 1, they're elevated over all their peers. And here we read about the fact that they had been set over all the affairs of, of the province of Babylon. You know, you bypassed the rest of us. Now look at these guys that you put in place. Look what they're doing. They're defying your orders. What kind of men have you placed over the province? I think the text emphasizes the fact that there is some kind of... Well, there is a conspiracy because it comes up again. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar, he... he, he, he just like in the first chapter, he flies in this fury. In the second chapter, he flies into this furious rage. He must have been a very emotional person. Anyway, uh, in chapter two, uh, the, king, the king declares that the, the Hebrew declares that the king became angry and very angry. That's what it says. He became angry and very angry in chapter two, verse twelve. In this chapter, the king is described as being in a furious rage. The Aramaic reads, "And the king became full of rage." And the image of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love the way that reads. The image of his face changed. You can imagine that, can't you? It's a very vivid image. Have you ever had seen someone become so angry with you that it shows on their face? Their whole appearance changes toward you? So in, this, in his anger, the king inquires of these men, Is this true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true? But he's, in his fury, he's going to give some grace, right? If you're ready, to, when you hear this, and then it says all those instruments again, when you hear all those instruments again, fall down and worship the image that I've made, well, then everything's going to be fine. Just compromise. Yeah. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to give up your God. I'm just asking you to compromise. Go along, go along with the crowd. Join in, you know, in the in the unity of 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 the prov of the of the of my empire. Just go along with us. That's all I want you to do. 
Now will you do it? <laughs> well, they answer him, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What do you want us to say? If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What does that reflect? It reflects humility and hope. First, well, they have confidence. I should have said confidence and hope. They have confidence that God is able to do it. God can do anything. So they have confidence in Him. Well, they also have hope because they say, and even if He doesn't, He's going to deliver us out of your hand. Um, but if it not be known, let, let it be known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not. They were standing, and that's how they were noticed, and they're still standing. Wow. So. King Nebuchadnezzar, in his fury, ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually heated. And he picked from the mighty men of his army to bind, the, to bind these three guys. Now, the furnace would have been hot enough, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, to heat it up seven times more, they didn't have anything to measure it. You know, like, okay, now it's seven times hotter. What it, what it means is that they were to make it as hot as possible. Everyone understood it was hot. Seven times hotter meant as hot as was possible for them to achieve. And the king commands of his mighty men. And the description of his mighty men is, is really interesting. It's uh, the men of great strength who were with great power or strength. So it's really emphasized that these guys are burly. <laughs> these are the kind of guys I think you might see in the magazines, you know, that flex their, flex their muscles. Um, they're strong. And so that description is emphasized. God wants us to know that the men charged with this duty were the best of the best, the strongest of the strong. But then what's interesting is that they did throw them into the fire and died in the process. So for all of their strength and all of their might, they could not withstand the heat of the flames. They died, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the way it's described, is they fell into the furnace. And so, though Nebuchadnezzar has the power to burn these guys, he doesn't have the power to save his own military men. They die in the process. But something really strange happened. Nebuchadnezzar's sitting there, and he goes, What? Did, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And, and his counselor said, well, well, yeah, true, okay, that's what we did. And he answered, but wait, I see, wait a minute, I see four, un, four men unbound. They're, they, they're not bound anymore. Didn't the, didn't the strong men bind them? I mean, I got strong men so they would be bound tight. We put them in there with all their clothes and their hats and everything. And they were bound tightly, and you, but now they're unbound. And one of them looks like the son of the gods. Now here's the ambiguity. It, I think that what Daniel is saying to us is that this fourth person 
appears to be the Son of God. Because in, in, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, the word for God is Elohim, which is God's plural. But it's always used of God when it's speaking of Him singularly, right? So I think that Daniel is communicating to us that his intention, or that God's intention, is for us to see that the Son of God was in their midst. But from Nebuchadnezzar's uh, perspective, I think he is saying there's one like the Son of the Gods there. Because he's still, he's still a polytheist. So there is an ambiguity, and, uh, but I think that's how we should understand it. That God wants us to understand Son of God, because as we come to the end of the book of Daniel, we're going to see the Son of God again appear. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go through. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door. How he did that, I don't know, because the other guys died. But maybe the fire burned down a little bit, whatever. And he went to the, he went to the door and he, and, he, and he called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go out from the fire. And uh, the satraps and the perfects and the governors and the king's counselors, they all gathered and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And this is the big one. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Wow. So Nebuchadnezzar now learns something else about God, doesn't he? Not only is God powerful to reveal mysteries, He is also powerful to save. Nebuchadnezzar is not powerful to save. Nebuchadnezzar's gods are not powerful to save. And that's what we need to understand. Beloveds, politicians cannot save us. The military cannot save our world. Science cannot give us eternal life, though there is a company claiming to have developed a pill to do just that. In fact, you can invest in it right now. 500 bucks. And I don't know, so many years, you'll turn that $500 into over a million. It's just one little pill. It's going to give people eternal life. So there are companies who think they can do that. Computer companies think they can save people's consciousness in, in, in computers. But I have to tell you, that the government or no one else can solve the world's problems. And we need to learn this, but I fear that we will learn it through oppression and persecution. Because for too long, the church has forgotten God. The most heart-rending verse in Scripture, for me, is Jeremiah 2.32, which says this, Can a virgin forget her ornaments? or a bride her attire. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Well, that brings us to the resolution of the story. It begins with Nebuchadnezzar erecting a golden statue to be worshipped by all men. It ends with Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging the God who has the power to save. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. 
Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb and to limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. He's not saying that God is the only God. He's just saying there's no other God. I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar the king was converted to the one true God. Some people think he may have been. We will find out in glory. However, we may notice that the king is moving in the direction of conversion. We will see this most clearly in chapter 4, to which we turn next week. And I just want to draw your attention to something that sometimes when we do evangelistic work, we're discouraged because we think that we're not making any headway with people. For some reason, we've bought into this idea that if we present the four spiritual laws or if we you know, bring them to an evangelistic service or if we bring them to church, that you know, they'll come and they'll make a decision for Christ. That's typical evangelicalism. But what we fail to understand is that people exist like on a continuum, right? You go from point A to point C, or we could call it something else, point S. So you're evangelizing someone who's at point A, atheist. And then you're talking to that person, whatever you say, God may use, and he moves to point B or point C, right? And some other Christian comes along while he's at point C, and uh, they begin to talk to him, and he begins to listen, and he moves from his, you know, on his, uh, his, uh, his, his agnosticism a couple more points ahead until one day somebody who, is, who talks to him, another Christian, moves him from that point that he's at to point S, which is salvation. Now you had a part in that. But the person who had him last got to see, got to see God working in that way. But we all had a part in it. That's what Paul tries to tell us in 1 Corinthians. Some people plant. Some people water. But it's God who gives the growth. And that's the process that I think you see here in Daniel chapter 1-4. to Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledging the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 3, he's a little more certain about that. He's a little more, a little more committed to that. When we see in chapter 4, we'll see him saying something even greater. But for right now, just think about how God is working not only in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but in a pagan king. God is the one who has the power, and He's the only one who has the power to save. For now I close appropriately with this prayer of John Calvin's. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, since our minds have so many hidden recesses, that nothing is more difficult than thoroughly to purge them from all fiction and lying. Grant, I say, that we may honestly examine ourselves, 
Do Thou also shine upon us the light of Thy Holy Spirit. May we truly acknowledge our hidden faults and put them far away from us, that Thou mayest be our only God, and our true piety may obtain the palm of Thine approbation. May we offer Thee pure and spotless worship. And meanwhile, while we con- make, may we conduct ourselves in the world with a pure conscience, and may each of us be so occupied in our duties as to consult our brother's advantage as well as our own, and at length be made partakers of that true glory which Thou hast prepared for us in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.